Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Bomber describes the real-life manhunt for a serial bomber. The events are sometimes graphic and intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Last time on Bomber. You know that this is an individual who is willing to kill innocent people, who is willing to kill random people, but this is about as dangerous as it gets. This week, pink gloves, a blonde wig, surveillance video, a red pickup truck, and the smell of burnt wire. He could go into the wind anywhere in America. So let's say he found out we were after him, and then he goes to Florida and starts blowing up things in Florida. I'm Jason Puckett, and this is Bomber. Monday, March 19th, 2018. The night after a tripwire had exploded in a quiet Austin neighborhood on the west side of town, injuring two victims, phones started ringing. Interim Austin Police Chief Brian Manley got the call just before midnight. So I received a phone call uh, from uh, the special agent in charge of the FBI, Christopher Combs, letting me know that there had been an explosion at a FedEx facility in Shirts, Texas. Back at his hotel room just outside of Austin, ATF special agent in charge, Fred Milanowski, was making phone calls, too. Fortunately, we had a team that was in San Antonio, um, which was close proximity to Schertz. Um, they responded there immediately. Schertz is about 65 miles south of Austin, actually closer to San Antonio. The scene of the attack was outside Austin police limits, but Manley knew they'd need all the help they could get. It was greatly concerning because now what we had was attacks that were focused on the city of Austin had now spread beyond the city's boundaries and, and into, you know, another city. So were we going to see this bomber now start moving around in a much larger area, which could make things more difficult, and we could potentially have to split resources as we're investigating in multiple different communities. We raced to the scene along with news crews from nearby San Antonio. A fifth package bomb explodes, this time at a FedEx facility just outside of San Antonio. This case now has two major Texas cities on edge. Early this morning, a package exploded on a conveyor belt at the FedEx facility in Schertz, injuring a woman. The FBI says the Schertz blast could be connected to the deadly Austin explosions. We started to hear more about what had happened. The blast went off shortly before midnight, when about 75 or so FedEx employees were on the clock inside the warehouse. One person was injured. She was knocked off her feet uh, when that package exploded and she got a concussion. But again, we're told that she is expected to be okay. KVU's Jay Wallace joined the swarm of reporters on the scene in Shirts, Texas. It's another place that doesn't tie uh, to the other spots where the bombs were, not only geographically, but in terms of what type of facility or place or neighborhood. It, it just, yeah, it made it even more confusing, uh, which also made it scarier. Like I said, you don't know where the next one going to happen. It was a FedEx. Like no one who would have guessed that after the first three uh, in residential type areas than a FedEx that just threw all of us for a loop. 
And like other blastings over the past 18 days, Jay had to be careful what he was saying on air and how he was saying it. You have to you have to straddle a fine line, I will say, when you're doing when I was doing this type of report, uh, knowing so little information, you can't scare people, but you need to make them aware and give them the information you know, right? We heard from residents living near the scene of the fifth blast. Again, familiar voices of fear and concern. I just think it's kind of crazy that that happened that close to where we live. And especially if I get a package, now I'm on high alert with that. This is way too many in such a small time frame. I am a law enforcement officer's wife. And so this plays into that. Because ultimately, this is affecting not only people at FedEx, but now we have FBI, we have SWAT, we have Shirts PD. If I wake up in a bad mood, I ain't going to send a pipe bomb or shoot somebody. I'm going to get a cup of coffee and say, hey, drive forward. It's, it's surreal. You know, it's, you, you're supposed to feel safe at home and then all this happens and you're, you're second guessing everything. You're walking out the door, checking around doorsteps and everything. So it's, it's real scary. And once again, we heard familiar warnings. If you have a package that was not expected, do not touch it. Do not move it, but contact 911. Police here across Central Texas again today asked people not to panic, but instead simply to be on alert. The last 18 days since these bombings started have brought with them more than 1,200 calls to report suspicious packages. That is here in Austin alone. But behind the scenes, investigators were collecting evidence and what was probably the biggest break in the case yet. After weeks of dead ends and wrong turns, they had a possible lead. FBI Special Agent in Charge, Chris Combs. When the bomb went off at the Shirts FedEx facility and we responded, FedEx turned over all the information they could about that package. ABC News lead investigative reporter Josh Margolin was following developments closely. This box came from which truck, which came from which location. That's how the system works. You know, it's a kind of a hub and a spoke system. So they're, they're doing that. Then they send investigators to the one FedEx location where the bomber had shipped the packages. KVU in Austin, American statesman reporter Tony Plahetsky was getting more info from his sources, too. We learned where the package had been mailed from before arriving at the FedEx warehouse in shirts. The bomber had gone into a FedEx store um, on Brody Lane. It's in a suburban community of Austin called Sunset Valley, just outside the city limits. And the bomber actually went into that store and shipped two explosive devices that were bound for two separate addresses in Austin. Two devices. We knew about the one that made it to the shirts warehouse, but another package was out there. So while the clues coming in were the first real turning point in the case, the reality of another package in the mail system was deeply disturbing. So authorities become very terrified that this person is relying upon private carriers like FedEx to ship packages. Also, there was this big question of whether or not there were others in any sort of mail distribution system at that point or any other private carrier system at that point. And so investigators became immediately even more concerned about the escalation of the bomber. So the conversations that we were having were whether or not we needed to really ground all of the delivery trucks for this carrier, have them park them in a secluded place away from residential areas, away from populated areas, and get the drivers away from the trucks until we could account for that package that we knew was in the system somewhere. And it wasn't just delivery trucks they were talking about. There was a much bigger concern. You now have the possibility 
that bombs have been placed in the mail distribution system, whether it be through the U.S. Postal Service or through one of the private carriers, all of whom use planes to fly parcels across this country. But as they grappled with the weight of that realization, there was good reason to be optimistic. The fact that they had traced the bomber back to a FedEx location in Austin also meant they had video inside the store. Back at his hotel, the ATF's Fred Milanowski received an image from investigators. I got the first pictures of the suspect mailing those devices. But they were a long way from being able to identify him. The figure in the video was in disguise. It's March, it's Texas, it was warm, um, and he's got gloves on, he's got a wig on, he's got a hat on. You know, it just looked you know, out of place just from the start, from the get-go. Fred Milanowski needed proof that this was the person who'd mailed the bombs. You know, in Atlanta with Richard Jewell, we got, you know, way down a rabbit hole against somebody that unfortunately was not involved. And so we wanted to make sure that that never happened again. So my first call was to my intelligence group supervisor and said, are we 100% sure this is uh, the individual who mailed these packages? And he said, let me get back with you. And he did some check-in, called me back 10 minutes later, and he said, yes, we verified it 100%. This is the individual that mailed the package that detonated in the Church, Texas facility. All eyes were on that surveillance video now. And the person investigators needed to talk to ASAP was the employee at that store where the packages had been dropped off and mailed. We had to wait till 8 a.m. for him to report to be interviewed. So agents went out and interviewed him. Um, and he was able to give us significant information. You know, he said, yes, that guy was very strange. Uh, in fact, he smelled like burnt wire. The FedEx clerk thought the man was odd enough that he followed him out of the store. Chris Combs with the FBI. Uh, he had seen a car that they thought maybe the guy came out of. It was just a description of a red Ford truck. And then we showed him pictures of uh, stock photos of small red pickup trucks, and he narrowed it down to a uh, red Ford Ranger. At some of the previous bombings, there had been sightings of a suspicious red Ford truck. So we knew we were looking for a red Ford Ranger now. Maybe you're in traffic right now. Look around you might see a few red Ford pickups close by. Now think about expanding your search area by several blocks or neighborhoods. Now think about how many red Ford pickups might be in the city of Austin or in the state of Texas. That's a long list. But that's what investigators had to work with that morning. And the video of the bomber did give them a few clues as well. We had a picture of the man so we could figure out his height, his body type, he was Caucasian, so a lot of that helped us start getting into how do we narrow it down to that one person. Later on, after we all saw the FedEx video replayed over and over and saw the strange footage of someone wearing a wig and gloves dropping off a package, many in Austin were angry, outraged even, that the store clerk hadn't done more. But Chris Combs doesn't share those feelings. I think it's unfair to judge anybody in hindsight to be a Monday morning quarterback. I can tell you this. When we went to that FedEx store and interviewed that person, he could not have been more helpful. Did, did he miss some things? Maybe he wasn't looking for him. It was a whole different way that the guy was mailing packages. So I, I, I can't fault that guy. I can tell you that once we get there, he did what any citizen should have done, and he, he gave us everything that he could, and that was extremely helpful. While this is all going on, remember, that second package was still out there in the mail system. 
and the bomber was clearly not slowing down. The bomber at this point is really doing all he can to thwart their efforts. Keep in mind, until this time period, authorities had been warning the public not to open suspicious packages left at their doorstep. But now by shipping them through FedEx, uh, the bomber is able to sidestep that public safety message and sidestep that urgent plea by law enforcement. I was scared for our community because knowing how successful this bomber had been, knowing that they had some level of skill in building these devices because they were able to build them and deliver them and actually have them explode showed that they had some level of skill. But it was so important that we let the community know that we we cannot panic because in a panic situation, people don't think straight, they don't think thoroughly sometimes, and if we could all work together, you know, as a law enforcement community and our community in getting out these so important safety messages and following some of the procedures we put out, that we could keep ourselves safe because these bombs were exploding as they were being handled, and so we were working so hard. But that afternoon, a sigh of relief. The second package is found at another FedEx warehouse closer to Austin. Like the first FedEx package, it's addressed to a business in Austin. It was still intact at the warehouse. The bomb squads uh, very impressively went in and they rendered that device safe. So authorities, unfortunately, were not able to gain any clues from that second device, like a handwriting sample or any sort of fingerprints. But the good news is that they stopped that device prior to it making its destination and prior to anyone else getting hurt. Later on, we learned the return address on both packages was labeled with a name, Kelly Kilmore. Eventually, investigators would try to figure out why certain businesses were targeted by the bomber. We spent hours interviewing those potential victims, and none of them could really tell us that they knew them or why they thought they were victims. Whatever was happening behind the scenes, we could all tell there was a new sense of energy, of urgency among investigators. ABC News' Josh Margolin. We had the distinct sense of speed and things happening quickly in those hours after the two devices at the FedEx location, the one exploded device, the one unexploded device. Things were already starting to get ahead of steam at the command center with the investigative group starting to put things together. FBI analysts had two lists now. The list from state police with the names of everyone in Texas with a red Ford Ranger, and they had the list they'd been putting together ever since the first attack with the names of anyone who'd bought a component used in the bombs. Even though you have hundreds of people on there, now you can start looking at those people and running all vehicles registered to them and say, does anyone have a red Ford Ranger? And it's like a puzzle, and you just keep putting it together. At the same time, DPS provided us a listing of individuals in the state of Texas that have a red Ford Ranger registered to them. So you can run every person in Texas that has a red truck and you have a list. So we take those two things and try to match them. And you get names. And then you take those names and you compare it against the names of every single person that's ever gone to other hundred stores. But the process would be painstaking with analysts pouring through records and looking at hundreds and hundreds of names. This is intel analysts and investigators going through all those pieces to find connections. It's by hand. I know Hollywood wants to tell you that we have these great computers that go through all that in seconds. I can tell you for the Austin bombing, 
It was individuals doing great work going through hundreds of boxers of records. One of those analysts was Jordana Nesvog. She'd been with the FBI for 12 years and with the Bureau in Austin for five. She started looking through a stack of receipts and the name on those receipts and cross-checking with vehicle records. Pounding away hour by hour, going through paper, trying to find that big, that big one thing that would get us over the hump. She started typing in names, looking for a match. Did anyone buy bomb components and own a red Ford Ranger? She picked up another receipt. She typed in a name, and then, almost impossibly, a match. She quickly called over a supervisor. That individual had bought one component. So we had his name in the database for one component that he had bought. So building that database on the front end, that paid off dividends for us. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. The name on the receipt was Mark Anthony Condit. Mark Condit owned a red Ford Ranger. They located a driver's license. They had his photo, 23 years old, with dark, straight hair, glasses, and a slight smile. They also had his address, a home in Pflugerville, just outside Austin, where the first bomb had exploded 19 days earlier. And, and we had that name, and then we started doing background checks and doing other uh, database queries where we felt that name was stronger and stronger. As the day went on, investigators watched surveillance videos. They saw the same man in the driver's license shopping for items related to the case. One of the videos from an Austin Home Depot. Yes, yeah, so the Home Depot video showed the bomber buying signs, drive like your kids live here signs that were used to anchor the tripwire. The video also showed him buying gloves, and those same gloves are the ones that he was wearing when he went inside the FedEx store. Things finally seemed to be falling into place. Whoever Mark Condit was, the evidence all seemed to point to him. By that Tuesday afternoon, the investigation really picked up momentum at a rapid pace. So we're in the command center, and they soon thereafter came and um, got a hold of myself uh, special Agent in Charge uh, Combs, Special Agent in Charge of the ATF Milanowski, uh, the District Attorney, the AUSA, and they brought us all into the briefing room, and they wanted to basically whiteboard for us all of the evidence that they had linking all back to the individual who was ultimately the bomber. By the time they reached the fifth or sixth piece of evidence tying Condit to the bombings, Everyone in the room was feeling confident they had the right guy. And so then the process turns to um, the legal process, making sure that they dot every I and cross every T in terms of getting warrants, not only for his arrest, but also to search his home. There was a sense of relief in that we knew who he was, but you still have that sense of concern because he wasn't accounted for yet. And since he had been so prolific with placing bombs around our community in the mail, we knew we still had to work very quickly. Everything had to be done by the book. They prepared other search warrants for his cell phone, his computer records, anything they'd need to bring the suspect in without a hitch. 
inside the command post, you've got prosecutors from the DA's office here in Travis County. You've got federal prosecutors working on this. Then outside of that room, you have surveillance teams that begin doing all they can to locate the bomber and get him under surveillance until they're ready to actually strike and move in for an arrest. I think the public sometimes doesn't grasp how hard it is to get search warrants and how hard it is to, to subpoena records. And, and having the DA and the U.S. attorney there really made that easier for us as investigators. As all that's being done, they're also pulling agents off of other possible suspects they'd kept an eye on. There were, in fact, a number of persons of interest who are still being considered as possible suspects. There's only so many assets you have. So every day, the command staff is making decisions as to where do we apply the limited assets we have. So when you come in with a new name, it's better be a stronger argument than the old names we have because surveillance is going to come off an old name to go to a new name. But they didn't need any more convincing, and agents started moving into place. All through the day, KVU's Tony Plahetsky had been feeling like something was about to break in the case. One of the reasons I thought that something could be going on is that a number of sources who'd been responsive during the investigation all of a sudden stopped returning my phone calls Tuesday afternoon. They stopped returning my calls. They stopped returning my texts. And so that made me think that there had been a turn in the investigation and that whatever was happening, they wanted to keep it ultra secret. Outside the command center, we only knew what we were being told, that the most recent package bombs had been accounted for, One exploded and another deactivated by police. At the time, we didn't know anything about the FedEx surveillance video or anything about a man wearing a wig and gloves going into the store or a red pickup truck. By Tuesday evening, we were reporting on the possibility that police might have video of the bomber. Tonight, the cameras that were recording inside this Austin shipping center might have captured the clip police need to crack this case. The video now being watched by federal investigators who say this is where at least one of the bombs was put in the mail. Investigators were working every angle, getting warrants, lining up plans to move in, learning all they could about the suspect known as Mark Condit. We started working up a background on the suspect, trying to obviously understand any of uh, his affiliations, known associates, residences that he was tied to, vehicles that he's tied to, casting a wide net so we could work to locate him. They were grappling with a lot of decisions, among them whether to reach out to the public for help knowing they were racing against time and that the bomber could strike again at any minute. They debated releasing the suspect's photo, but some of them, like the ATS Fred Milanowski, who'd hunted down Eric Rudolph, were not in favor. Now, if you remember, in that case, once we identified him, that information got out to the public, and we spent the next five years looking for him. I mean, the biggest manhunt, you know, in U.S. history. So we're very cognizant of that and concerned about that. It goes back to a lesson from the Boston bombing, to be honest with you, where in the Boston bombing, the video was captured showing the bombers. And there was debate there, do we release that video or do we wait and do more investigative activity? Because it's a double-edged sword. You put the video out, you show the world who the bomber is, and you get more eyes to tell you where he is. Now you just told the bomber you're onto him, which could push that person into more violence. That was a debate that the FBI had with the Boston bombing, and I was there. Um, it's a debate that I raised in Austin because although we needed to take action, I didn't want to take action and tip the bomber off that we knew it was him because, frankly, I was scared that he would go out and do more mass murder. 
And by nightfall, police had another decision to make. Do we go execute the search warrant at his residence or do we wait for daylight? We knew that he was a very skilled bomb maker and the likelihood that his home at a minimum would contain explosive devices, but also likely maybe booby trapped would make it a very complicated tactical operation for our tactical teams. And then the other unknown was whether or not he was actually in the house at that moment. And we knew if we executed the warrant that night and he was not in the home, he would likely get word and possibly leave and make it much, much more difficult to find him and, and, and who knows, commit what violence along the way. To do a SWAT raid and a search on a bomber's house at night, safety-wise, it's not a great decision. So based on all that, we decided, let's spend tonight trying to find him, get him under surveillance, and then tomorrow morning, rest the troops, make sure everybody's ready, do it as safely as possible, we would hit the house. It was an agonizing choice for Brian Manley. It was a tough choice for all of them, knowing that the bomber was still out there, maybe planning another attack. That's the job, you have to make the decisions, and in that moment, uh, I felt like the right decision, uh, consulting obviously with my, my partners. We really were an effective team, uh, the SACs for both the FBI and the ATF, that uh, the right thing to do was to wait for sunup. So they waited, and we waited. And then, the unthinkable. We're meeting in the conference room, and we get a message that there's been another explosion. We begin tonight with breaking news out of Austin, where officials are on high alert after yet another incident in that city. You, you automatically think it's connected, right? You automatically think, all right, you don't, you don't report that, you don't say that, but it's in your mind. That's what you think. And so it's in that moment that your heart sinks again because you potentially have someone else that has been seriously injured or killed when you know that you are hopefully hours away from bringing somebody into custody. Austin police, federal investigators, the bomb squad, reporters, we all raced to the scene of another possible explosion. Someone had dropped off some military surplus-type ammunition, and so that caused a blast uh, at a drop-off site uh, at a Goodwill store. That Goodwill store is actually not very far from the FedEx store, and so that made people think that uh, perhaps it was the work of the bomber. KVU investigative reporter Erica Proffer was closely watching developments with the rest of us. Even when they said, it's not related, it's not related, we had to go, really? How do you know that it's not related? Or could it have been related and it just doesn't fit a pattern? Um, and so we were skeptical about it. And a lot of the community was skeptical about it as well. Tonight, investigators believe this scene at a Goodwill was not connected. The CEO of the store telling us this wasn't a bomb. Uh, there was a bag with a device in it that gave a flash. Uh, everybody panicked and went in different directions. Somehow this flash or whatever happened injured this fella's hand. Thankfully, that was not another bombing attempt, but it was a donation to goodwill of a, an incendiary military device that had just ignited. So here we were, knowing that we had identified the suspect, knowing we were working on the arrest warrants, but yet having that 30-minute window, however long that was, of thinking that we may have seriously injured or, or lost another member of our community while working on it was, uh, was, was very concerning. For all of us in Austin, it was almost more than our frayed nerves could take. We had to take a deep breath and keep on going, though. 
Something else happened that day we didn't know about. As police were putting teams into place near the bomber's home, there was a mix-up. A mix-up that led EMTs right to the bomber's house. There was an inadvertent dispatch of an ambulance to the bomber's home. Uh, that ambulance was supposed to respond to the immediate area to be on standby in case something happened, but through a communication error was instead dispatched to the home. We're just clearing this call on North 2nd. I need you to stage at your fire station. Do not make scene. Despite what you just heard, the ambulance crew didn't stay at the firehouse. Without knowing it, they were knocking on the bomber's front door and that ambulance crew did make contact with individuals inside the home. The bomber didn't answer the door, but maybe the visit had tipped him off. Was he aware that police were looking for him? So I think in some form or fashion, he may have been concerned that, uh, that we were potentially closing in on him. It had been 18 days since the first explosion in East Austin, 18 days since a suburban dad opened a box on his front porch. Over that time, Austin had mourned the loss of that father, Stephen House, and 17-year-old classical musician Draylon Mason. We'd seen other victims rush to the hospital with serious injuries. We had seen the terrible power that a small box of store-bought components could unleash. We'd seen the bomber go from using package bombs to a tripwire to putting deadly boxes in the mail. We had wondered who was behind it, who were they after, and most of all, why. Through it all, from the scene of the first blast, Brian Manley had stood in front of our cameras and told us to look out for each other, how to stay safe. His calm kept our city in check, even when everything seemed to be going off the rails. On that Tuesday night, Manley wasn't going to get any sleep, not with a bomber still on the loose. I couldn't leave the command post. I don't know why, but I was, I was hanging around the command post. There were very few people that were still in the command post, um, and I was just thinking through things. Suddenly, there was a buzz of excitement. Something was happening. It was just a ping from a cell phone. Mark Condit had turned his phone on, just briefly, and police had a location. I was then advised that they had located the suspect they believed. FBI Special Agent in Charge Chris Combs also got the news. Just got back to the hotel, literally just took my shoes off, was going to go to bed to get ready for an early morning with the search warrants. One of our tech supervisors called and said, we got him. We know where he is. We're moving troops out right now to his location, which was the parking lot of the hotel. Next time on Bomber. There was a nationwide investigative effort to find out where is this coming from. It was a voice on the other end of the phone telling me that something was going down. Thinking of all the different ways that this may transpire. Uh, We were able to discover a lot of evidence that led us to believe that not only was he planning on more attacks, that he had the equipment to do it. Into the flames, I laid you down. Bomber is a production of Vault Studios and KVU. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and other major listening platforms. You can also listen and learn more at bomberpodcast.com. Our executive producer is Will Johnson. My thanks to the people of Austin, my colleagues at KVU, federal investigators, and the men and women of the Austin Police Department. 